Ways to Success, our podcast to really talk about all things in the industry of healthcare and where we're headed, where we think we're headed, where we might be headed, uh, and really just having conversations with experts in the field and just have a little chat about. Today, we're going to talk to Leanne Frick about a lot of different things that are happening in the industry. So super excited for her to be here today. She's the president of Care Navigation Consulting and a PT by background, and I'll have her introduce herself a little bit more. But we're going to talk about a lot of things around the healthcare industry and just have a little banter, I think, uh, to be able to maybe broaden your horizons a little bit on what's happening out there in the industry. So welcome, Leanne. Thank you, Karen. Always a pleasure to talk to you, and I appreciate the uh, the invite. So looking forward to to the discussion. I always like it when I get a chance to chat with you. It's always interesting and uh, invigorating and makes me lose sleep at night just thinking about all the things <laughs> that we talk about and everything that's coming down the pike. So let's start out with one of the big things that we're seeing right now in all the headlines and everybody's um, up in arms about, and that's the staffing mandate. Where do you think it's going to land? <laughs> Let's start with an easy one. You couldn't throw me a softball, Karen? Come on. <laughs> That's coming next. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, you know, I, I don't obviously, like a lot of people, I don't think a mandate is going to create people who want to just run and come work in our industry. I really don't think that that's the that's going to happen. Um, you know, I, in reading, you know, the exclusion of kind of the LPNs, I think, you know, they're very relevant in our space and how that got neglected, I'm not sure. Um, clearly, there's a lot of stakeholder resistance. And, you know, truth be told, it's a pretty long runway, two years after the final rule, and we're coming up on an election year. So, uh, you know, you have to just kind of sit back and go, I worry about things when I need to worry about things, and I just, you know, don't know that we're there yet. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. Mark Parkinson, I think, said it best, and I don't think he was the only one that said it, but he says, just because you make a rule doesn't mean we're all of a sudden going to have 77,000 nurses to right. come work in a nursing home or work in the long-term care industry. So where where are you going to create these nurses from? Yeah, there's a lot of jobs out there already posted, right? And and people aren't running to fill them. And so legislation, I don't think is going to change that. Um, people are trying to hire people where it's needed and and it's a challenge. And I don't think, you know, this is going to fix it. Where do you think therapy is going to end up with that? <laughs> well, speaking of fixing it, how about we <laughs> fix Care Compare PT hours first? Um, you mean you they're know, wrong? <laughs> every time I pull that information and look at it, I go, you know, this this provides zero help or insight to anyone who's really trying to find a, a place for a loved one who needs, you know, rehabilitation care and, and things of that nature. Um, you know, from a therapy perspective, I think that it's, this is one I've struggled with because I do think that we as therapy need a seat at the table. We need to show our value and relevance. And I think that's very, very important. Um, but I don't think that the census relationship to therapy is is as clear cut as nursing when you look at payer mixes and you look at short term versus long term and all of those things um you know and i also have to worry a little bit that it could be challenging 
for us as therapists to maintain that kind of top of license approach and mentality if our hours are included and and the perception could be we are another set of hands. So again, I don't know that that I have a clear cut landing on that, but you know, I think if we're included, there need to be some uh, side guardrails, if you will, or or you know, some sort of nuanced um, criteria. Well, I would have the same concern with them including therapy as they're talking about with the nursing where you're excluding the assistants and only counting the evaluating therapists, same mindset that they're using right now for the RNs versus the LPNs. And, right. you know, the ratios are there. It's set up specifically to be able to have less evaluating therapists and more assistants in order to be able to cover more of the residents, right? And and be able to distribute that evaluating therapist mindset across more people and right. be more of an oversight as opposed to not that they don't treat, they do, but that would be my big fear around yeah. which hours they include. And then are they just going to continue to include just PT? Because, hey, guess what? There's two other disciplines at least. Um, and right. then throw respiratory ser- therapy in there, too, if you have a vent unit or or a COPD unit or some, you know, a unit that needs respiratory. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, again, I, I think there's uh, there's a lot of questions in and around, you know, the inclusion of therapy in it. Um, but, you know, first things first, let's fix care compare now. <laughs> Please. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, and I think make it a little bit clearer to the audience that they're trying to hit with care compare. Absolutely. Because like I said, to look at it, it means absolutely nothing. I mean, we know what it means in 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 mathematical terms right but it's it's still not relevant um and so you have to you have to package that very differently for that audience well and let's continue down that vein around care compare and the star rating when you talk about the health inspections how many states do we have that are so far behind on health inspections they're not hiring more surveyors right there's a there's a freeze yes i think i read that somewhere where we've frozen something um but there, you know, it's not like you have people jumping to be surveyors either. People are exiting the healthcare industry. So if you're hinging that whole star rating on first the health inspection, then staffing, then quality, really quality's third in all of that. Right. <laughs> I mean, I get right. that staffing has a piece of that, but you're not telling the whole, like to your point earlier, you're not telling the whole staffing picture by just including RNs and then the PT hours aren't even included in the calculation of the staff. So why even right. have it in there if it's not, A, if it's not accurate, B, if it's not affecting anything? Right, right. Yeah, there's a lot of, you know, I mean, again, if they just give you and I control for, I don't know, a couple of weeks, I think we could fix a lot of this, Karen, right? Yeah, yeah. We have a few great brains that we would bring in on that and just go right. in behind, just we're going to go in behind closed doors. You all have to stay out there. We'll be out in a minute. Right. Maybe two. Right. Maybe two. Maybe two. I, yeah. I feel like we could we could do it in a couple of days, really. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, there there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of challenges with how some of this stuff kind of comes together. And and you know, in some ways we speak of of the priorities and on one side of our mouth, but then to your point, you know, you've got survey, then staffing, then quality, and and we've got a, you know, allegedly a huge initiative for quality and value and things of that nature. So it doesn't always kind of pan out. 
So I want to go back for a minute around sort of related to this staffing piece, but you use the word relevant and valued. Let's talk about the therapy piece of that and what happens from rugs. Not that rugs was ideal because I think 720 and 500 was should never have been the dosing that and that's how we talk about it is is in dosing right. was re really 720 and 500 was really the dose that we needed for 92%, whatever the number was, it was a big number. Uh, of all of our residents, there's no patient-centered care there, which I know is why we went from rugs to PDPM. But talk a little bit about your thought process on maintaining relevancy and value from a PTOT speech perspective now under this new payment model. You know, and I think I think we were all very hopeful with PDPM. To your point, Karen, I don't think any of us thought rugs was a great solution. Um, but we are very good at figuring out uh, whatever system we're provided and and figuring out how to best you know do what we you know what we come to work to do. Um, okay. I, I think that we still have to look at optimizing every minute we have with the patients that we have. So clearly there's been a reduction in utilization in minutes um, and that was expected. And John Kane, you know, clearly gave, uh, you know, validity to that expectation from a CMS perspective. But, but what concerns me more is what are we doing with the time, whatever that time is. And we've got constraints with length of stay from certain payers and constraints. There's all kinds of things, but I truly believe that if we as therapists work within those constraints with the time we have on function, on effective and efficient quality care to prepare our patients, residents for that next level of care, whether it be assisted living community or home with a spouse or home alone, okay. then you know that's where we need to be focused and not just filling in the time and we've been filling in the time for 20 years and as crass as that sounds on some level i'm not saying it wasn't there wasn't good therapy in that time but it was so driven by the minute and now i think we really have to look at what are we doing with the time right how effective can we be with these shortened you know stints of therapy well and, and i always give the comparison and we set ourselves up for this in some ways in being able to fit into the rug system and make sure that we were getting the reimbursements and you know unfortunately rugs focused on the reimbursement first and now quality is becoming the initiative which is great it should be about the resident it should be about the patient it should be about everything that they need and dosing that appropriately which is great i think that's what pdpm brought to this now, different companies handle it differently um, right. from that dosing perspective. It should be patient-centered. It should be that, you know, look what we did under rugs. How many times did we have to have a therapist run down the hall and get an extra seven minutes so that we made sure we hit the 720 to be able to optimize that that most likely appropriate reimbursement, right? Because you, you walk a, a thin line when you have that conversation, but let's just be truthful about it. So... Now getting the therapy teams to rethink that because we've been hammering that at them, like you said, for over 20 years. How do how do we change that mindset? I know you you do some education, especially with PTs, 
um, with your background and and um, clinical associations, what how how do you change that mindset in your mind? Well, you know, I think I think we have to be real um, as we as as we all functioned under rugs and and we did what you know what we did to get the patients what they needed and to, and to uh, it was set up to optimize reimbursement um, and and so you know then PDPM comes into play and we know you know minutes have gone down um, but the the second thing that you hear is but the outcomes haven't changed. Well, okay, so that tells me one of two things. Either <laughs> we were doing too much Here it comes. under rugs, right? <laughs> or we're not, or we're not, you know, looking at the right outcomes. And I and I think that to be completely I think therapy, yes, we have, you know, the standardized patient assessment data elements that CMS has integrated across the post-acute continuum and so on and so forth. But I think from a value and a relevance perspective, we as therapy have to create, we have to have data. We have to show what we're doing and how it is benefiting the patients and the outcomes and the costs and, and all of the things. And I think, you know, we kind of get into fits and starts with that. And it's a hard thing to do across an industry with a lot of different companies and a lot of different, you know, methodologies. Um, but, you know, there are some things that we can zone in on, I think, that shows what we're doing is working um, and we're bringing value and ultimately affecting the broader healthcare continuum. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think we talk a lot about at Functional Pathways, we talk a lot about power punching those treatments, right? Fitting as much, you know, the the most functional things that that resident truly needs to move to that next level of care and be as safe as possible, reduce those falls, reduce those rehospitalizations, successful discharge to the community, um, and making sure we're following up on all that. So not setting 15 goals for the resident. Well, yeah. and you, you hit you hit one of the nails certainly from a, from a falls perspective. I mean, we know that's a challenge when they get back to their home environment that's a challenge medication management that's a challenge Huge. health literacy caregiver training that's a challenge and when do we start that oh they're getting discharged next week or tomorrow let me get the wife in here yeah. <laughs> and and try to make this all make sense and you know i, I experienced this personally with my father um you know and and watching the interactions with family and, and I know how this all works, right? And was still slighted in that process. And so I, I think that we know what the probable issues are gonna be. Let's focus there. Do you feel like there's a part of the healthcare industry that's ahead of the curve on that? Like hospital versus home health versus, or you feel like we're all playing catch up on that? Oh. Mm. I get my gut answer, Karen, is I don't think anybody's doing it great. I, I think we are just all trying to check the boxes, you know, get things done. And, and then we lose sight of this is somebody's dad. This is somebody's husband. This is somebody's, you know, and, and truly, again, I've been in this industry for 30 years. And last year, and and watching my dad go through this the continuum and all the things that we we see our residents do every day it was like 
holy cow. Like, you know, not that I didn't know it, but when it becomes personal, you're just, it, it's a different, it's a different level of intensity. Yep. Yep. And I had this similar experience and you and I have talked about this with my dad and being in the sniff world, being in the hospital, trying to decide about hospice and all those different things. And I watched my mom's face just kind of go, no. And, and I, we talk about it on a fairly regular basis. Although, you know, I try to stay way up here with her because she certainly doesn't need to be in the weeds with it. But even hearing the different ways that people interpret and I think a lot of it does come down to, I mean, that's the key word in that sentence is interpretation, is how different communities and healthcare groups interpret what they're supposed to do. And I don't right. know, how do we standardize that? You know, I, I, I don't know how we standardize it. I think um, it's, we have to personalize it. I really think we have to personalize it and we have to to get, you know, everybody, we've all been asked, why did you get into healthcare, right? Everyone's like, I wanted to help people, whatever, you know, whatever your answer is, I truly believe, and especially in the post-acute world, it's a calling. Like, it's a calling because I was that PT student that was going to do outpatient orthopedic sports med. And here I am 30 years in, you know, I never even went there. I did a clinical there and was like, oh, no, mm -mm." But the first time I impacted a lady at a clinical in Indiana who had had a stroke and her husband came to treatment every day, I mean, I was, that was it. I was all in. And so, you know, I, I, I think we've got to get back to the why. Yeah. And really reignite that passion for why we would do what we do. Because if you have that passion, you're automatically going to want to practice at the top of your license. You mentioned it. We mentioned it to our therapy teams. We always talk about that top of license, whether you're an evaluating therapist, whether you're an assistant, whether you're a rehab tech nurse, RN, LPN, doesn't matter. It's all about that top of license. And the person in the center of that is our patient or our resident, depending where they live in that continuum. But I feel like we may have gotten some of that back during COVID. Maybe that turned a light bulb on for that because we had to. Everybody banded together. And I hate the fact that the pandemic happened. But, and I say that with a cautious but, because there is there was nothing good that came out of, out of that. We lost too many lives and it took us too long to figure it out. But we came together as an industry to do what we had to do for the residents that we served. And what better outcome could you have from such a horrible situation than the fact that, hey, we know we can all do this together. Right. The community and, and, and you know, back to kind of that top of license mentality, that doesn't mean we can't help somebody off of a bedside commode or help. We all have to, right? We're all in those situations and, and need to be helpful. But, but it's the majority of our time has to be focused on that because that allows everybody in the healthcare continuum to, to optimize their time and do their job effectively. So talk a little bit about optimizing time from a therapy brain perspective. I know you and I talked about this a little bit earlier around evaluation codes, maybe making sure we're really looking at what we're doing, that we're billing appropriately, that we're using the right codes, that we're power punching those treatments or, you know, whatever phrase you want to use for that as a PT 
and even for me as a speech therapist, you've got to look at how how do I get the most effective use of the time? And I know that there are certain scenarios that we have created as an industry, as a therapy industry of point of service documentation and all those kind of things. And what we do in some instances to be able to do that as we think effectively, but maybe not because it still has to keep that patient. So just talk a little bit about your mindset on that. Yeah. So, you know, I said we're very flexible, right? We can adjust and adapt as an industry, as therapists. That's kind of who we are and what we do. You know, evaluation codes are one of the conversations I have a lot in and around a couple of aspects of them. One, you know, we got the for PT and OT, the low, moderate and high complexity uh, variations. Um, However, reimbursement never changed. Right. They all reimburse exactly the same. Problem one, because (laughs) the incentive, right? And should there be an incentive, but you know, the incentive to to choose the most appropriate code is certainly not there financially, right? So I feel like we sometimes are not, you know, adhering to the CPT code definition. um, And therefore we're sending CMS a picture of the type of patients that we're treating that may not be accurate, that may not encompass all of the comorbidities and the social issues and the this and the that. And so we look, you know, we sometimes get short-sighted in, oh, well, they all reimburse the same. Does it really matter? It does, because every data, every data element we send CMS comes back to us in, in some way, shape, or right. form. You That's know? what keeps me up you, at night. <laughs> right, right. And then you think about the, you know, the evaluation time, and I've had this conversation, and if you go look at the true definition of the CPT codes for evaluation, it includes the establishment of the plan of care. How do we do that in 15 minutes? Because those, you know, under PPA, under rugs, um, you know, that was very common. It's not gone away. Now, it shouldn't be three hours. I mean, again, to your point, patient-centered. And I think there are a lot of dynamics, um, and and we've always had, you and I have had this conversation, uh, uh, trying to balance the operational and the clinical. Um, And you have to have both. Um, But, you know, I think sometimes we just get kind of shifted one way or the other. And I think, you know, we accommodate some of the constraints or perceived constraints that I think then results in us sending CMS bad information. Well, and I think that's probably true, not just from a therapy perspective, but when we went to PDPM, moving from rugs where the majority of the residents were reimbursed based on their therapy minutes, had nothing to do with nursing. If you got a denial, as long as the support for the therapy minutes were there and the nursing knock documentation said patient participated in therapy today, you know, that was their skilled note. And, you know, resting quietly with bowel sounds present all four quads. We were good. Well, I mean, it's a different day. It is a new day. And I think there's still a gap there. A, the the staffing shortage does not help with that at all. And and we're trying to a lot of people are using agency. There are fabulous nurses out there. I'm not saying there aren't there. They have a hard job. I think some a, a lot of times harder than what we have to do in therapy. You know, we we get them for two and a half hours a day, probably right. less. And they have to take care of them the rest of the, you know, have the burden of care for the, for the rest of the time. 
So now it's their turn to step up and and be able to do that. But what are you seeing as the the common as you go into sites and, and consulting as those common areas of missed opportunity or or flip side of that opportunity to improve? So again, I think that everybody is is head down, like what's right in front of me, right? And so even with the the October one changes, right? Everybody's like, okay, we've got these new questions. All right, how do we deal with the new questions? How do we collect the information? How do we make sure we got the right information? And and then and then it's like, oh wait, we got we got to use the information. <laughs> oh, well, okay. We'll get to that, but like, you know what I mean? Like, I think that that everybody is, again, it's not neglect, it's not, you know, militia, it's just everybody is just trying to handle what's right in front of them. And right now it's filling in the blanks, right? Collecting the information, like getting all your T's crossed and your I's dotted and, and you know, you get the QRP and the percent, you know, everything's accurate, no dashes, blah, blah, blah. and you know, sometimes you just have to step, step back and go, what does Mrs. Smith really need? Right? Right, like, right, right. Is this really I, what she looks like? Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And and I think we get so focused on, and therapists, you know, again, like, I got to get my plan of care. Like, step back and look at your plan of care and go, is this Mrs. Smith? Like, have I painted the picture of Mrs. Smith? And, you know, with, with, whether it's the MDS or therapy or whatever, if I've seen Mrs. Smith before, like, have I acknowledged the change, whatever that is, um, and and how do we deal with that? And I and I think that it's it's kind of broad and being able to step back and get a, a fifty thousand foot view outside of your I got to check the box. Well, and I think there's a compliance piece to that as well. And I know every company has their compliance department. We certainly have ours and they do a fabulous job. But I think sometimes that's the head down is, oh, my gosh, I have to make sure that I document a standardized assessment, that I do an oral motor assessment, that I make sure that I do this, this, this and this. And you're like you said, I'm head down making sure I've got that documentation. And then you look up and you're like, oh, well, that doesn't even really match what I just totally missed exactly what's happening with that resin. I've tested their strength, but you know, they can't even talk to me. So right. <laughs> right. Right. So how you know, how uh, person centered is it really, right? If if all you you know, we're we're kind of documentation centered. Like what do I have to, you know, document? What do I have to check? What do I have to collect? Well, but some of that's been set up by the CMS governing body as well. They require more and more and more. And being one of the most heavily regulated industries in the planet, probably the solar system and beyond, universe right. maybe, um, you know, you spend, and I've always said, the more time you spend trying to figure out regulations and reading manuals and filling out forms, the less time you have the hands that are needed to take care of the patient. And, you know, that's that's always a concern to me anytime I see 25 more QMs or, you know, we're going to have 50 QRPs or whatever the magic number is. Who knows? You know, we, we may get an errata on Friday that tells us about that. But uh, <laughs> but how I, I even t I, I talk a lot because, you know, being involved in MDS and RAC certification, all that and working closely with the MDS and IDT team, we talk a lot about the care plans. 
And who do we really do the care plans for? Surveyors. <laughs> right. I mean, that's <laughs> the answer. And it's amazing to me when I go out and I do trainings for MDS and I say, look, the, the care plan is really for the surveyor because nobody else is really reading it. And you talked about just being upfront and truthful and honest. That's just the truth. And the CNAs don't have time to read a 56 page care plan. They need to know A, B, C, patient, you know, needs to go to the bathroom at 10 a.m. I need to make sure they're fed, watered, and turned, and that they're as safe as they possibly can be, that they are clean, um, you know, that we've, we've done everything of their basic care needs, and, you know, the, the care plan falls into that. So I don't know where that's going to end up. I don't know if you have thoughts on that as far as can we can we get rid of some of the heavy constraints that we have and not compromise care and quality. Can we? <laughs> I we didn't could. say will, I said can. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, again, I think, you know, the the intentions, right? When you think about the MDS and the RAI process and all of the things before rugs and it was attached to reimbursement, um, you know, the the intention of that was to kind of put all the pieces of the puzzle together and figure out how to effectively take care of this person in front of us, right? And prepare them for whatever that next level of care or potentially home, uh, you know, was. And and that's not bad. That's not, you know, ill-intended. But, you know, when you when you start to put all these regulations and then tie it to reimbursement and then, you know, you've got the QMs and the QRP and the VBP and the, you know, whatever other acronym you want to throw in there, LMNOP, it, it just creates this scenario where, quite frankly, you can't manipulate it. Like you can't, you can't try to figure out how to make it be positive for everything that the MDS impacts. What you can control and what we should focus on is the systems and processes to get the information, to support, have the documentation to support the information that we get, and to utilize that to make sure the patient is cared for appropriately. And, and all the other stuff really, I believe, falls into place because when you start trying to figure out how you can influence you've lost accuracy and we're attesting to the accuracy on the UB and on the MDS. Yep. Supposed and, to be. And so from, from that perspective, we're saying we've got all the documentation here to support this MDS and this UB. That's where we need to focus. Are you seeing, I'm gonna go a little bit back to the staffing piece, but tie it into what you just said. Now that we're seeing more remote MDSs, I, that was my reaction as well, but yeah. we have to get them done. I mean, we can't have the dashes. We can't have, you've still got to meet your QRP metric. You still got to make sure you're assessing the resident. How do we get back to those hands on the residents? I mean, not that there's any... If it's a, if you're just information gathering and you're reading the documentation, but we all know there are holes in the documentation and the more you can have eyes on the residents to then be able to document that true picture, the better. So I know we were just doing what we needed to do post pandemic and even during pandemic. Where do you see that headed and your concerns around 
what that means from a regulatory perspective. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it's it, it, I kind of equate it to the, the whole use of telehealth in, in physical therapy, right? Like physical therapy infers like we have some physical, you know, aspect to what we're doing versus, you know, uh, I'm on a, a Zoom screen, right? Or whatever the case, HIPAA compliant, of course. But, you know, making sure sure that i mean healthcare is is people it's relationships and interactions and and all of those things and i'm not saying that you know there's isn't anything that can be done remotely but i think that um you know what we do is so personal and so intimate that it really takes kind of an on-site village <laughs> to make that happen, I think as effectively, and maybe I'm just old school because I am old. I've been doing this, like I said, for 30 years. Um, and I'm not opposed to innovation, but you know, it, 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 if we can accomplish the accuracy and truly the, the accurate painted picture of that patient with a remote person, there has to be some connection to the on-site right staff that's feeding that into you know so yes it could happen does it probably not all the time i mean i would you know beg to guess probably not but you know we to your point we had to kind of step back and and figure out some alternatives um and now i think you know as we've all heard through three years of a pandemic and people working from home like people got comfortable doing remote work and now there's a lot of people that that's their preference right I think there's aspects of healthcare that don't accommodate that, but again, at the end of the day, it comes down to how are we getting the information that we need accurately to paint the picture? All right, here comes your softball question that you requested okay. at the beginning. Ready? If there was one regulatory item, <laughs> there's your softball, right? <laughs> right. One regulatory item that you could change, what would it be and why would you do that? You know, I just and again, I don't know if it comes back to kind of the personal experience or 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 whatever, but the three day qualifying stay to me is just ludicrous. It's so antiquated, it, yeah. you know, back when three days was the norm or eight days was the norm and a three day qualifying stay gave you access to a benefit period. I get that. But that is no longer the case. And so we've all been in that scenario where we're like, can you just keep them one more night? Because we really want to get them in, you know into a skilled nursing facility or so. So you have increased hospitalization costs because I'm sorry, hospitals do accommodate that if if they can, you know, if it, right. they can figure out how to make that work and support it. Um, and so, you know, I just think that's, that's an antiquated regulation. Um, I understand CMS's concerns with, you know, Katie bar the door, everybody's just gonna send everybody to, but there has to be something in between, maybe. Um, you know, there are still criteria for a, for a skilled stay. There's still, you know, the wellness period. There's still access to another be benefit. It's all of those kind of constraints. So I feel like if we're really concerned about total Medicare spend per beneficiary, which we are, yep. I think we're going to have to make some accommodations. Well, I think even included in that, and this just came up recently with one of our clients talking about procedures and the the whole consolidated billing, I would tack that onto there as well. If you're talking about that three-day stay and reducing that to either one or two days, 
there are still procedures that get ordered that get delayed or, you know, the resident's not stable enough to get it. And then they send them to us, but then we're the ones that have to pay for it in the SNF when it should have been done in the hospital, or maybe it could wait until after they're outside the SNF. But, you know, the SNFs have such a small, sometimes zero margin on, I mean, the whole right. cost goes to the resident. So, <clears throat> which is great. You know, we've, we've got to be able to take care of that resident. But when you start hacking away at that with some of the things that are in place from a consolidated billing perspective, that whole piece has to go into that too, I think. Yeah. And, you know, when you're, <laughs> you just have to, again, step back and think we're in healthcare and you're going, okay, the the first question is who's paying for this? Like, you know, I mean, you have to like, right. if you right. do it here, it falls under this, but if we wait and then now it's out of, it just seems like there should be a resolution to that. So again, give us a couple of days and yeah, figure. yeah, right. Put us in a locker room. Nobody allowed to be participating in that. Just have, you know, you, Cynthia Morton, Kelly right. Clooney, a couple really smart people uh, and we'll fix it. We'll no fix problem. It. Easy peasy. Have, have a little pizza in the middle and right. <laughs> you know, good, good snacks. We're all good. <laughs> yeah. So exactly. I know we've just got a couple of minutes left, but when I follow up on um, two, two final things, one managed care. Where do you see that headed as far as their regulations? Because, you know, it is the enrollment period. So, and I do like to watch a little TV at night to help me fall asleep. And all of these commercials for Medicare replacement policies, Medicare supplement, call Joe Namath and ask him if what, what plan. Joe knows managed care. Right. <clears throat> well, oh, I got a lot. How much time we have? <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. You know, I think that obviously there's a focus. We've got an OIG focus on managed care. We've got a congressional focus on managed care. There, there's a lot of banter out there about some things that are are not going well. Um, however, CMS isn't incentivized to to mitigate. Like they they want managed care to take over, and um, even though it's costing them more, there was just like an overpayment, 16 billion dollars. They they guesstimated for 2022 an overpayment for for MA. But but that's less than the traditional. <laughs> I'm thinking, is that our litmus test? Um, but you know, I, I think that. Um, it's so funny, those of us in healthcare, and you see everybody kind of posting, don't do it. Like it's the Medicare disadvantage plan. It's this and that. My father went to his grave swearing that his MAA plan was the best thing since sliced bread. He had, that was his perception. Now I knew better and I knew yeah. some of the, the challenges and the guardrails that we had to deal with because of them. But, you know, that was his, his thing. So what I am hopeful uh, about is, you know, there was a listening session a couple of months ago in and around MDSs and the expansion of uh, those for other payers, which I know makes us cringe when you think about staffing challenges and some of some of that. But if you're strictly talking about the data and the transparency, we don't have that with them. We don't know all the details of how effective they are, how, you know, if their outcomes are better, if they're caught, you know, all the things. We know that those companies are making a lot of money. We know that for sure. The other stuff we don't have insight to. And so I think that through this focus of the various entities and, you know, 
the proposed or, or probable, I would say, um, expansion of MDS information for those types of payers. Um, I, I think we're going to have some more leverage to figure out. If they've got a better mousetrap and it makes sense and the patient's getting what they need, I'm all for it. Let's figure it out. I'm not convinced that that's yeah. the majority of the case. So I think there's a lot of work to be done there. Especially when you see the disparity, like we have our own outcomes tracking tool that we use for all payers. And when you see such a huge disparity in length of stay and GG outcomes that we're tracking based on what we look at outside of just the MDS, right. it's it's big for some of these companies. Not all. Some of them do a much better job than others. But it'll be interesting to see uh, where it goes and, you know, if that pendulum swings back to more traditional Medicare as opposed to continuing down the MA path. All right. Last question. Last question. Uh, in the perfect world, in your ideal, if you could have everything in that little snowball, you know, um, little, shake it up and everything, the snow falls beautifully and everything's good. If snow's your thing, what would the post-acute uh, continuum look like? You know, I, I, it comes down to right care, right time, right place, right? Like, how do we just take care of the patient wherever they are, however they are effectively and and have a successful discharge to the next level of care. And I think you have to have a value aspect to that. There has to be a quality aspect to it, um, given, you know, where the trajectory of healthcare is. Um, and I think there has to be, you know, outcomes, outcomes that are meaningful to the patient but to the healthcare system at large. And so that that report card is, is uh, you know, effective, that, that we truly are painting the picture of, um, you know, we've established the right care at the right time in the right place and, and as evidenced by. Um, and, you know, we got to get rid of the, regula the antiquated regulations. I'm not saying, obviously, we need regulations, but there are right. some that just don't make sense. Well, and I think to add on to that, I, I agree that that's the utopia. Utopia. Uh, would the be uniform. the utopia. Right. <clears throat> but also being able to have that across the continuum where the rules are the same, where we all have to stay within those same guidelines and, and guardrails of. And I think we've done that with hospitalizations. Everybody's focused on not having the patient have to go back to the hospital, but the patient the hospitals need them to come back to the hospital, right? Because then if they don't, then they're in trouble. So what's that balance there? And I don't know that we know what that is yet because we've changed payment systems and, you know, heaven forbid, we just take care of the resident. If we do what's right for the resident, everything else should fall into place, right? It should, it should. And we've had, we've touted that for as many years as we've been in this business. And, and I do believe it. I just think we've got some, some barriers and roadblocks in our way that, that, you know, hopefully with, with time will change. Yep. Agreed. Well, I greatly appreciate your time and I always love chatting with you. I always learn something. Uh, again, I'll be up tonight thinking about uh, some of those utopia things that we talked about, but Really love having you on and, and uh, always enjoy our, our chats. Same here, Karen. Thank you for the opportunity. It's always great to chat with you as well. So appreciate awesome. it.